Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop and Kyle talk about an important but sometimes overlooked vocation, those who live a life of consecration to God. What are the different forms of this vocation? How do they work? Hear Bishop explain and give examples from right here in our diocese. Then, is it ever appropriate for a priest or deacon to address current events in a homily? And the show wraps up with Bishop answering listener-submitted questions on why the Eucharist has to be unleavened bread and more. To submit your question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, joined, as always, by our bishop, Bishop of the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. Thanks for being here, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. What's the best meal you've had lately? Oh, good question. I was just at a picnic with a family in Fort Wayne that invited me, Sam Ensley's family. Sam is uh, MCs a lot for me, uh-huh. and he invited his a, a wonderful grandmother so that I've met a couple times. Very faithful woman. She's, I think, 91. And she's uh, Mary Carroll, and she's a parishioner at St. Charles Parish. So they had me out for a picnic at their house, and it was really delicious. Yeah. Anything in particular? It was just, you know, everything on the grill, chicken and beef and shrimp. So it was kind of a mixture, a variety of stuff, (laughs) and I really enjoyed it. Very good. And a delicious chocolate cake to boot. (laughs) There you go. Can't beat that. Yeah. Would you mind starting us off in prayer today? Yeah, I know that today we're going to be talking about religious life. So I'd like to do a prayer that St. John Paul II wrote to the Holy Trinity for men and women in the consecrated life. Okay. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Most Holy Trinity, blessed and the source of all blessedness, bless your sons and daughters whom you have called to praise the greatness of your love, your merciful goodness, and your beauty. Father most holy, Sanctify the sons and daughters who have consecrated themselves to you for the glory of your name. Enfold them with your power, enabling them to bear witness that you are the origin of all things, the one source of love and freedom. We thank you for the gift of the consecrated life, which in faith seeks you and in its universal mission invites all people to draw near to you. Jesus, our Savior, incarnate word, as you have entrusted your own way of life to those whom you have called, continue to draw to yourself men and women who will be, for the people of our time, dispensers of mercy, heralds of your return, living signs of the resurrection and of its treasures of virginity, poverty, and obedience. May no tribulation separate them from you and from your love. Holy Spirit, love poured into our hearts, who grant grace and inspiration to our minds, the perennial source of life, who bring to fulfillment the mission of Christ by means of many charisms. We pray to you for all consecrated persons. Fill their hearts with the deep certainty of having been chosen to love, to praise, and to serve. Enable them to savor your friendship. Fill them with your joy and consolation. Help them to overcome moments of difficulty and to rise up again with trust after they have fallen. Make them mirrors of the divine beauty. Give them the courage to face the challenges of our time and the grace to bring to all mankind the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you for that. And I think this whole idea of our religious brothers and sisters, it's something we don't see as often as maybe they would have 50 years ago. I mean, especially, I know we had a convent at our parish that was full of sisters that ran the school, and now it's the daycare, uh, right. the preschool. And so I do think maybe there's a, a little bit of a rise in in some of the men and women going into the religious life in recent years. But still, it's it's something we don't think about a lot. We don't talk about a lot and maybe aren't aware of that as a, a potential vocation for ourselves or for our children and something that we, we should be encouraging people to discern. But I think one of the reasons maybe it gets lost a little bit is the importance of we need more priests and we need more holy families. And sometimes that idea of the consecrated life gets a little bit lost in the shuffle. So can you talk a little bit about what the role of a religious brother or sister is in the church and why that that's important? Yeah, it's really important. I mean, it's a beautiful part of, of the church. And, you know, I remember when I was growing up, we had, I had sisters in every grade of grade school, except one, hmm. there were like 24 sisters in in the convent at my parish. So that was very typical. I think it's helpful for us to look at maybe what this type of life is about, how it began. And also um, we talk about religious life and sometimes you hear the term consecrated life and there's, mm-hmm. there's really a difference. So I think it would be good to, to explain that to the listeners. But yeah. beginning, we're talking here about a call of life in which one is consecrated to God through the profession of the three evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And this has been a feature of the church from the earliest times. We have individuals like St. Anthony in the desert and St. Benedict who felt a call to live a life of solitude, a life of penance, and gradually they attracted other believers, other people who wanted to join them to live that same style of life and Then we have the evolution of various groups of people, men and women, living a consecrated life together. And down through the centuries, the the church has recognized them in in the church's life and in the law of the church for such people who, who live a special life of consecration or groups, communities, religious communities, what we call institutes. And basically, they profess to live a particular way of life, and they, they take these vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Now, religious life is one form of consecrated life, because you can have people who are living a consecrated life but don't live in a religious institute. For mm-hmm. example, we have consecrated virgins. Mm-hmm. You know, That's an individual. They're not part of a community. And then there's the, there are hermits who live a life of solitude and penance. They don't live in communities. So there's, mm-hmm. there's various forms of consecrated life. The one that we're most familiar with, of course, are religious institutes. But there are also secular institutes. Secular institutes are part of consecrated life as well. That's a type of consecrated life in which Christians living in the world make these... Uh, vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. It's an institute for those, a secular institute 
they're not separated from the world. They don't, you know, I mean, they could live in community, but usually they don't. They basically live in the world. So it's, a, it's good to see when we talk about consecrated life, it's a little broader than okay. religious life. But the most common, of course, form of consecrated life that most Catholics are familiar with would be religious institutes and religious life. So would this secular institute not be a considered a brother or sister? In some ways, they function like that. But I'm trying to think members of secular institutes. Some priests are members of secular institutes. Okay. So you'd call them father. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think hmm. the members who are lay people, single lay people, go by brother or sister. So you wouldn't have a Franciscan or Dominican no, secular, secular institute. institute? No. Okay. No. I'm trying to think of maybe some examples of secular institutes that you may have heard of. They're not as well-known, obviously not as well-known as uh, religious institutes. I think sometimes they can be called sisters now that you think about Schoenstatt, for example. Okay. Schoenstatt is a secular institute. It's an apostolic movement. And we do have a woman up in South Bend who is, uh, they call her sister. So uh-huh. I guess they do use, I just thought of that. But that's a secular institute. There's about 30, I think, secular institutes in the United States. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's interesting, yeah. But I think you want to talk more about religious institutes. That's what we're most familiar with. And they're one form of, of consecrated life. So you have overall institutes of consecrated life, and then you have religious institutes, which are one group of institutes of consecrated life, the other one being secular institutes. So when we look at religious institutes, it's where a person again, is consecrated and really offers their life to God and offers their life. Now, we've all been consecrated through baptism. We're consecrated to God through baptism. This is more of when we speak about the consecrated life, it's kind of even a more radical following of Christ through the evangelical counsels of poverty chastity, and obedience. So you have this group, this this religious institute is like a society that has its own laws, okay, its own constitutions, how they live, what they do, etc. But they all make what are called public vows, not private vows. These are public vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. They live a fraternal life. They live in common, mm-hmm. in community. Their vows are usually temporary, and then they make them perpetual later on. So there's a whole governance structure for a religious institute. There's superiors, etc. They have houses. Usually they have chapels or oratories with the Eucharist in their houses. They're established, you know, if a religious institute begins, it has to have the approval of the church, you know, the bishop. Eventually, many then get approval from Rome. And when they become pontifical, they answer directly to Rome. So a lot of the institutes that are here in our diocese, we don't have any diocesan institutes right now. All of them are pontifical institutes, so they Mm. answer directly to Rome. And they all have their own governance. They have to follow canon law. And as well as the approved laws of their institute, the norms of their own institute, they have what are called chapters, where they have elections of superiors, et cetera. And in their chapters, they, they make important decisions regarding their, 
what's in their constitutions and their way of life. They are uh, juridic persons, so they can administer, they can own property and they have their own goods, their temporal goods, and all that is regulated by canon law as well. They admit candidates to become members, and there's a whole formation of their members. Generally, it begins with a period called postulancy, followed by a period called the novitiate, and then there's usually temporary vows. And then they usually live in temporary vows for a certain number of years before they make perpetual vows. But the institutes have their own laws about all of this. They have to follow the canon law of the church, the general law, but then they also have their own particular laws, their own particular norms. Basically, religious, their supreme rule of life is following Christ, following the poor, chaste, and obedient Christ. That's what it's all about. And their first duty is prayer. You know, that's why they're religious. That's their first duty. They're to be devoted to a life of prayer. And some of them have a law of strict enclosure, like monasteries, monks, or cloistered nuns, where they're actually living apart from the world and don't go out into the world. That's So you have these monasteries of monks or monasteries of nuns totally devoted to the contemplative life, like the poor sisters of St. Clair that we have in Fort Wayne. But they're not yet a, an institute. They're not yet a religious institute. They're under me. They're a, an association. They're huh. on their way to one day, hopefully, becoming an institute, a religious institute. But so, you know, that usually they have to begin as an association who's who's trying to live that way of life. And they're so therefore, when they take their vows, they're private vows. They're not okay. yet public vows. Hmm. The apostolate. Okay, so these these religious institutes, you know, here they are. They take the vows. Prayer is at the heart of their life. They have a fraternity, a fraternal life in community. Some are totally devoted to contemplation, to prayer, the cloistered nuns or monks, like I mentioned. But then many institutes are dedicated to apostolic works, like teaching or health care or, or parish ministries or whatever. So they have this apostolic activity that they engage in, in the name of the church. And so I think probably most of the religious institutes that you're familiar with or people are familiar with have apostolic works. Mm -hmm. For example, many of us who were taught by religious sisters or religious brothers, education was their apostolate. Okay. Others, communities, they might have healthcare as their main apostolate. Would they also call that a charism sometimes? Charism, like a teaching yep. charism? Teaching or? charism. You look back to the founder uh -huh. or foundress, you know. There are some communities where they had a variety of apostolates. Like if you look at the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration with their mother house in Mishawaka, mm -hmm. they're involved in both education and health care. Yeah. So, for example, they sponsor the University of St. Francis. Uh -huh. They have some sisters teaching in Catholic schools, but they also have a whole healthcare system and many hospitals that they sponsor. So from the beginning, they were involved in that. You know, a special service to the poor. Most of religious institutes have a very special dedication to the poor. Mm -hmm. That's part of it, part of their life. So it, it's a variety of... of um, ministries or apostolates that they could. But again, that's kind of flows from their identity as religious. In other words, living 
the evangelical councils. That's mm-hmm. kind of, and living prayer and living in community, that's kind of heart of their life. The apostolate flows from that. That, I think, kind of sums it up. I mean, if you want some examples, there's so many examples of religious institutes. Here in our own diocese, we have mother houses of some of these institutes. If you look at the Sisters of the Holy Cross, their generalate is at St. Mary's uh, at Notre Dame. And that means their principal worldwide headquarters, okay. where the general superior is, is right here in our diocese. That's, it's not in Rome. You know, a lot of generalates are in Rome. Hmm. But for the Sisters of the Holy Cross, it's right here. Most of the other mother houses that we have are provincialates because generally a religious institute of pontifical right, one that's under Rome, would have a, a general superior with a general council for the whole order, for the whole institute. But then they'd be divided into more local groups called provinces, different geographical areas. And that each province would have a provincial superior with a council. So we have a number of provincialates in our diocese. For example, the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration in Mishawaka. That's a province of okay. that community. But their general headquarters is in Germany. Mm-hmm. Now, the poor handmaids of Jesus Christ, same thing. They have a provincial headquarters in Donaldson here in our diocese, mm-hmm. but their general generalate is in Germany. Huh. Congregation of Holy Cross, the priests and brothers, the U- U.S. province is headquartered up in South Bend at Notre Dame. That's the U.S. province, but their general headquarters is in Rome. Okay. Okay. So you can look at each of these communities. We also are headquarters for the Congregation of Holy Cross's province of brothers that is at Holy Cross College, but they're part of the bigger congregation that has its general headquarters in Rome. Yeah. And so then all of these orders would have a superior within the order, but then ultimately they would answer to the Pope? Yes. Would be their their ultimate superior? Right. But not, you wouldn't be their superior? No, no, I'm not their superior. They're, if they're not diocesan institutes, they're pontifical institutes. Uh-huh. So I have no authority over their internal life, under their internal governance. Now, their activity in our diocese, yes. Okay. You know, but not their internal life and governance. That go, that's Rome. Okay. They have their own governance. So they have their own, you know, these chapters that I mentioned where members come together and they make decisions. But, but they also have their own superiors mm-hmm. on the different levels. They have local superiors, they have provincial superiors, and they have a general superior. Uh-huh. And ultimately, the general superior would be under, under the Pope, I mean, under the, the Vatican. The Vatican has a, a whole congregation, the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life that really is the Pope's office or organ to oversee all of these religious institutes throughout the world. And I think you use these terms, I think sometimes we use them interchangeably, like a brother, friar, monk versus a sister, nun. Can you clarify those, those names? Yeah. Well, members of these, um, these active communities of women religious who are members of religious institutes are, are sisters. But if they're in cloister, they are nuns. So, 
In so, reality, we weren't taught by nuns. No, we, we were, were really taught, by, taught sisters by sisters. Because nuns wouldn't have left yeah, the convent. Right. But it, but informally, it just became common to refer to all sisters as nuns. Uh-huh. But if you want to look at it strictly speaking, right. only those who are in cloister are, are nuns. Same with, uh, with men. I mean, monks are those who live in monasteries, you know, apart from the world. Mm-hmm. Friars generally are those who are like the Franciscan friars or Dominican friars. They're mendicants. They, they travel around. Mendicant. Uh, mendicants. Mendicants orders are those who beg mm-hmm. for, you know, they live radical poverty, so they beg. But they weren't enclosed in a monastery. They were out in the world. Okay. And brother goes with friar? Well, a brother or... is, is really the equivalent of a religious sister. So the okay. brothers are members of a religious institute. But remember, we have priests who are members of religious institutes. So there are religious priests as well as diocesan priests. And so there are some communities, some institutes that have both religious brothers and religious priests that are part of the same congregation. Okay. Well, coming up, Bishop will talk about the role of the homily and if it's appropriate place to be addressing current events right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And one of the things I think that comes up every once in a while when there's like a, a big thing happening in the news uh, politically or uh, morally as well, some people will kind of demand that our, our priests address this issue from the pulpit. And it got me thinking about the role of the homily. And my understanding is always that the, the homily is to talk about the readings and not necessarily to be talking about current events. Right. But if there's a way to tie the two together, great. But what is the role of the homily? And, and is there a need for priests to be addressing current events, uh, moral things, or, or even just kind of general ethical and catechetical things that we would have, right. we would need to be learning as parishioners? Is that the, the role of the homily? That's a really good question. I think the most important thing to to realize is that the homily is part of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... We generally now don't speak of it as a sermon because okay. a sermon would be a, like a lecture that you're giving some religious instruction hmm. or uh, on a moral issue or whatever. You give a sermon. It might be an aspect of Christian doctrine, and that may or may not relate to the readings. Mm-hmm. So before the Second Vatican Council, they usually used the, the term sermon. But now we use the word homily. And so people kind of use those words interchangeably. But there really is a difference. You know, it used to be, for example, that you might, especially before the council, where there might be a series of sermons, let's say on the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So you could go to church on Sunday, Mass on Sunday, and maybe for 10 weeks, 10 Sundays, you learned about a different one of the Ten Commandments. Uh Okay, so it may not have been at all related to the reading. Uh So we don't do that anymore. There could be other ways where you can give sermons outside of the Mass. You can have preaching, teaching, or you might have adult ed or or whatever. But that's not the purpose of, of the homily. The homily is to 
as you said, should be connected to the readings or the mass of the day, the prayers of that mass, as okay. well as the readings. Like the, uh, the saint that we're recognizing or right. Corpus Christi or something? Yeah, or there might be something in the prayers of the mass that day, the collect, okay. for example. You know, there are times where I'm preaching a homily, I might refer to the opening prayer of the collect, which said something beautiful, and I can expound on it. Mm-hmm connecting it to the readings, the feast that's being celebrated, whatever. But the whole idea is it's part of the liturgy. So we, we're setting forth really the mysteries of our faith when we preach a homily, you know, how we're living our life as Christians, as, as followers of Christ. And this should then be, we should be drawn into the mystery that we're celebrating of Christ's death and resurrection, the Paschal mystery, drawn into then the Eucharist. There is catechesis that can happen. I'll just give an example. Recently, I was, it was, I forget which Sunday it was, but I was preaching on, you know, Jesus um, saying about taking up our cross. If we don't take up our cross and follow him, Mm -hmm. we're not worthy of him. And so really I was reflecting on what that meant when Jesus says that to the disciples and how they, I imagine they would respond to that because taking up a cross was pretty, you know, that was pretty shocking. Crucifixion yeah. was seen as so terrible. Right. But then I said, now what does this mean to be a disciple? How is this essential to discipleship? And then I related it to our life and what it means to take up our cross. And so I think there's that whole idea of, of, of looking at the word of God, reflecting on it, and also its meaning for our life. And, the, you know, so a priest always, sh- always should be thinking of the, the congregation and some of what they're doing. And there might be particular things going on in the news or in the world that would be connected as well. We can't ignore, for example, we're going through the, when we were going through the coronavirus pandemic, uh-huh. you know, you don't just not talk about it. I mean, but often that could be brought in. Right in light of the liturgy and the readings and the prayers or, you know, other contemporary topics. So I I don't think you don't talk about current news, but at the same time, that's not what its purpose is. Mm -hmm. But if it's something that everybody's on everybody's mind, I think you kind of have to address it, Mm -hmm. but try to do it in light of, of the readings and in light of the feast that's being celebrated. If it's a particular feast day, but I think we have to avoid, you know, becoming exclusively a commentary on some item in the news because it's, it's kind of straying from its, uh, its purpose. Is there a better place for that? Would that be like a, an article that you put in the bulletin or something that you'd post on social media or yeah. uh, something you'd offer on a Tuesday night to come in? We're going to talk about this issue, whether it be racism or immigration or something like that. I, I guess as a parishioner, we, we want our priests to share their wisdom with us. And if it doesn't fit the context of the mass, where can we get that yeah. kind of formation? I think all of the above. Okay. Or, you know, you could, I could ask everyone to, to be seated before the final blessing. If I want to address mm. a particular issue. Okay. Apart from the homily. But I would say, I mean, sometimes issues, some of the moral issues that we're dealing with, like racism, 
You know, I mean, I could be thinking about that when I'm reflecting on the gospels and see an easy connection. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just talking about taking up our cross and following Jesus, talking about discipleship. Well, you could easily tie in, you know, a reflection on being a disciple of Christ means respecting the dignity of every human person, that one can't be a, a true disciple of Christ if one has racist, you know, has uh, racism in, in his heart. Mm -hmm. So I think there are ways where it can be drawn into the homily. But there, and then there are other ways where you might want to get into it more in depth, et cetera. Like you said, you could have something in the bulletin. You mm -hmm. could have something on your parish website, a YouTube video with a, where you're talking about it. Yeah. So I think we have to use all these various means of, of communication. Are they required for masses, homilies? Every mass has set, have a homily? or Well, yeah, that's a good question. There's a canon in the Code of Canon Law about homilies. First of all, homilies can only be given by priests or deacons. Mm -hmm. So it's reserved. At all masses on Sundays and holy days, there is to be a homily. Okay. Unless there's a grave reason that it can be omitted. This is pretty important. I mean... We cannot neglect preaching a homily unless there's a grave reason. I would think a grave reason might be, let's say, the priest has laryngitis or something. Yeah, health you know reasons. I mean? But um, now, as far as other days, like weekday masses, it's strongly recommended that a homily be preached at mm -hmm. weekday masses, especially during Advent and Lent. So it's not obligatory on daily masses, but it's strongly recommended. Obviously, they should be shorter, mm -hmm. you know. So it shows how important announcing the Word of God is, how important the Word of God is in the liturgy. And it's a really important task of priests and deacons to be serious about preparing well good homilies. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And someone asked why the Eucharist needs to be unleavened bread and wine. We'll get the answer to that and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and I will ask questions that you have submitted for Bishop to respond to. Like this one, why does the Eucharist have to be unleavened bread? Why wine and not grape juice or orange juice? Okay. Well, if you remember, in the, the signs of bread and wine are really important. Um, I'm going to read something that Archbishop Fulton Sheen wrote about the signs, because it's one of my favorite passages about why we use bread and wine. But let me, I'll get to that a little bit later. Basically, it's because Jesus at the Last Supper used bread and wine, mm -hmm. unleavened bread and wine. And even in the Old Testament, bread and wine were offered in sacrifice among the, all the fruits of the earth as a sign of gratitude to our Creator. So this is even further significance when we had the exodus from Egypt. Remember the unleavened bread, you know, that uh, Israel eats every year at Passover. It recalls or commemorates how the haste of the people 
departing from Egypt that they had, you know, they, they left in haste. So there wasn't time for the, the bread to, to rise. So it was unleavened bread. Huh. Also bread recalling the gift of the manna in the desert, uh, how God fed his people and nourished his people. So bread has always been important and the unleavened bread recalling the Passover. And then also the festive joy of drinking wine, also part of the Passover meal. Jesus, of course, gave new meaning to the blessing of the bread and the blessing of the wine. But we have things like in Jesus's life, he multiplied the loaves of bread. He turned water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. So bread and wine have always been quite important. And the church, therefore, has the norm that for the celebration of the Eucharist, the bread that's used must be unleavened and it must be made purely of wheat. That's really important. Hmm. Can't be made of other material or mixed with any other substance. That would be very, very wrong. You, you, know, you can't put fruit with it or honey or sugar or anything like that. That's strictly for prohibited in the bread that's used for the hosts in the celebration of the Eucharist. Now, there is an issue for people with celiac disease where we will not allow, we do not allow, because it has to be wheat bread, hosts that are completely gluten-free are not allowed. That would be invalid matter. But we do allow low-gluten hosts, partially gluten-free, that are valid matter for people who can't tolerate wheat. Mm -hmm. But there has to be a sufficient amount of gluten so that you have actual bread, but you can't add foreign materials, as I said. It has to be pure wheat. And same with the wine, you know, it has to be wine, but the church does allow, and especially for people who can't tolerate drinking wine, especially a priest, let's say who might be alcoholic, mm. the use of mustum. And mustum is grape juice, but it is valid matter for the Eucharist because the method of fermentation is suspended at some point. So, so for special grave reasons, mustum can be used. But again, it is the fruit of the vine, but it doesn't go through the total process of fermentation. Okay. So let's say I had a question once. Can they? There was a question about a, uh, a, a child who was allergic to wheat and some parish had rice bread or mm -hmm. you know a host made of rice that's invalid mm -hmm. that is not truly the body of christ you can't make it out of any other substance so i think we have to be really careful i mean it's rare that i have ever, anyone who doesn't know this but you have to be careful but i'll get back to archbishop sheen about why bread and wine is important and also because as i said jesus that's what jesus used at the last supper uh -huh. and that's what the church has always used and it has its roots in the Passover and in the Old Testament. But this is what Archbishop Fulton Sheen said. Why did our blessed Lord use bread and wine as the elements of this memorial? First of all, because no two substances in nature better symbolize unity than bread and wine. Hmm. As bread is made from a multiplicity of grains of wheat... And wine is made from a multiplicity of grapes, so the many who believe are one in Christ. I think that's a really strong argument. 
And we see that imagery in early Christian texts about how we become one, like the many grains of wheat become one and the grapes become one. So I think there is a really important symbolism there that Fulton Sheen points out. The unity is expressed. Second, Fulton Sheen says, no two substances in nature have to suffer more to become what they are than bread and wine. Wheat has to pass through the rigors of winter, be ground beneath the calvary of a mill, and then subjected to purging fire before it can become bread. Grapes, in their turn, must be subjected to the Gethsemane of a wine press and have their life crushed from them to become wine. Thus do they symbolize the passion and sufferings of Christ and the condition of salvation. For our Lord said, unless we die to ourselves, we cannot live in him. I that's beautiful too. Yeah. I mean, the, the suffering, the crushing of the, the wheat and then the grapes, you know. A third reason, Archbishop Sheen said, is that there are no two substances in nature which have more traditionally nourished man than bread and wine. In bringing these elements to the altar, men are equivalently bringing themselves. When bread and wine are taken or consumed, they are changed into man's body and blood. But when he took bread and wine, he changed them into himself. So beautiful. Maybe some good reflection there. Yeah. All right. Well, a reminder, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop to submit your question for Bishop to answer. You can also text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have more questions for Bishop to respond to on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and Bishop will answer your questions that you've submitted first question is, what are the pros and cons of having a hyphenated diocese? Why not just one cathedral? Interesting question. There aren't many hyphenated dioceses. A hyphenated diocese basically has two sea cities, in our case, Fort Wayne and South Bend. There are a few others in the United States. Wheeling, Charleston, West Virginia would be one. Let me think off the top of my head. Houston, Galveston. Yes, Galveston, Houston is another down in Texas. So, yeah, there are a few others. I know there's several in Italy. And then there's multiple cathedrals. Then there's a cathedral in each sea city. But there's always only one principal cathedral. Okay, so the principal cathedral of our diocese is the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Fort Wayne. I don't know about advantages other than or pros and cons. The cons, you know, at least in our situation is... You know, for the bishop, I have to do a lot of things twice mm-hmm. uh, in both cathedrals, both sides of the diocese. But I guess you could say that's a little bit of a con. But but I think it's good because in many ways, I don't know that people would travel from one end of the diocese to the other that often. So, Because there's probably much larger dioceses that only have one cathedral. Right, right. More Sometimes it's historical reasons uh-huh. that they do. I think the fact that... South Bend never became a diocese on its own, 
you know, when they created the Diocese of Gary, they chose the city of Gary, not South Bend. So it was around that time that they changed the Diocese of Fort Wayne to be the Diocese of Fort Wayne dash South Bend. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. Okay. How does a bishop determine when and how he will release a statement? I guess they're referring to public statements. Sometimes I'm asked by the media for a statement, and that'll be your occasion. Okay. Other times there might be something going on that I feel it's important, some very important matter that is in the news or you know, a Supreme Court decision or something like that, or it has to do with that really affects the church or, mm-hmm. or important moral issue that I feel it's important. But I don't have any like fast rules about when I'll make a statement. I just have to kind of prudently decide when it's a good idea. I don't feel like I should be making some public statement on everything that's happening in the society. Mm -hmm. Uh, That gets kind of crazy. But issues that are really important, I think, on the moral level or for the life of the church, then I will make a, a public statement. All right. Another listener said, I hear people talking about scrupulosity. What does it mean to be religiously scrupulous, and is it a good thing or bad? Well, normally it's a bad thing. I mean, when we think of scrupulosity, it's really a uh, form of OCD. It's a form of obsessive-compulsive disorder. And it's really painful for people who suffer from this because it's, it's when they're overly concerned about something that they think, for example, might be a sin or... They're thinking about it all the time. They're they're worried about it all the time. It's excessive worry. So it's kind of like a compulsion. So then they feel like, oh, I got to go to confession. I got to go to confession in a way that's excessive, you know, like constantly, constantly. It can be very troubling. I mean, it's like OCD, so obsessive compulsive. So they're always seeking reassurance that from the priest or whoever. And really, you can't always deal with this spiritually because it's a psychological problem Mm -hmm. and needs to be dealt with in that way. Just like OCD might be dealt with usually through maybe some medication to lessen anxiety or could be some therapy, cognitive Mm -hmm. therapy, especially that can be helpful. So that's, that's scrupulosity. I, you know, you can say sometimes someone will use this, the word scrupulous in a, maybe a different sense that might be okay that they say, oh yeah, he's very scrupulous about this. But they mean just careful. Uh-huh. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something that's really unhealthy. How and, would... and sometimes, you know, priests have to deal with this with some penitence. You know, God doesn't want us to be in this anxious, worried state all the time. Oh, right. you know. So having that OCD can can really be uh, uh, crippling for some people. Yeah. How would you know if it's a healthy amount of worrying about your actions and your sins and an unhealthy amount. Yeah, it's, you can kind of tell, I mean, if, if someone is coming so often like repeated, repeated to confession and you can see that they're just so filled with anxiety that it's, it's not healthy. You can mm-hmm. tell, like, I just, you know, you try to say, well, just trust in God's mercy, you know, don't, you know, the, but they're, they're so fixated in their mind on maybe one thing that they, they're just living in constant anxiety about it and not able to let it go. They really have to trust in God's mercy. I guess in ourselves, how would we identify that of 
Well, I mean, we obviously should be bothered in our conscience when we Uh commit a sin. Right. That's healthy. That's good. That's important. And then we go to confession. But if after confession, we're still preoccupied with it. Okay. And doubting whether we're really forgiven, there's often scrupulosity there. Or, oh, did I say it exactly as I needed to say it to the priest and right. all this kind of stuff? And then all these other ideas come. Did, or did I might, might have forgotten this sin? And, you know, and then constantly going over and over one's past and trying to, you know, that's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. You know, we just have to trust in God, hand things over to him, you know? That's why, like, at the end of saying our sins, you know, I always say, for these and all the sins of my past life, I am truly sorry, Mm -hmm. you know? It doesn't do any good to try to, like, punish myself by trying to think back to, you know, oh, did I forget to ever mention this sin or no? I mean, if you know, that's not healthy. Uh, You know, we we just do our best. We're human. Uh Good. Very good. All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for another great episode. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.